0: Back with you again, and uh, if you're visiting, welcome. Glad to have you here as we open up uh, God's Word. If you're coming in cold, we just looked at the first three verses uh, in the first chapter of the book of Jonah. So open your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1. I'm hoping we can get through verses 4 through 16 uh, for this session this morning, but just by way of recap. Uh, This morning we we met the reluctant prophet who rather brazenly disobeys the Lord. He runs the other way on his mission to go and preach to Nineveh. And among other things, we learned that God has a plan for the nations. Uh, This is a global plan. We see this really all throughout uh, the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation where the nations are streaming to Israel because of Christ. Uh, the Lord loves the nations. He, he, the nations are part of his uh, plan and purpose. And on a more personal level, we learn that disobedience never really pans out. It never works out. It's never a good idea. Rationalize uh, why you think it's better to disobey God, and that never works out ever Uh, Our section, if you're a note taker, starting in verse 4, has three uh, major movements. The storm, the sailors, and the shame. Uh, So let's look at, starting in verse 1. This is a story of just irony after irony after irony. I'm telling you, I love I love this. I love this chapter. Verse 4, the storm. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. The word hurled in verse 4 is the same word used of uh, hurling a spear, for instance. The, The Lord has done this. The Lord has hurled this. The word mighty is the same word used of Nineveh, the great city, the mighty city. So Jonah refuses to go to the great city, and so Jonah will face a great storm. The disobedience brings about a storm. You might say disobedience oftentimes brings about a storm. Now, not every difficulty is a result of sin. The book of Proverbs teaches us that we reap what we sow, as the prophet Hosea taught. If we sow the wind... We will reap the whirlwind. There are laws of nature. There are laws of God. And when we violate those laws, when we disregard those laws, ignore those laws, there are consequences. Jonah's experience, honestly, is so instructive. He disobeyed God, but he didn't immediately experience or reap the consequences. Maybe even he felt good, relieved. There was probably a short-term uh, gratif- short-term pleasure in just going his own way and ignoring God's command. He probably felt quite good about it. But that feeling was short-lived. It always is. It's a great picture of sin. Uh, like radiation, you could say. We don't immediately feel the consequences. The effects come later. Well, Jonah is now in the middle of a raging storm. Notice the ship is is personified in verse 4. The ship threatened to break up. One scholar noted, the ship is actually the first to realize the brutality of the storm. Jonah is the last one to respond. Jonah is still uh, clueless, seemingly at this point, oblivious. He's in the middle of a storm of his own sin, really. But there's a principle we can highlight, even in the first verse here, verse 4. It's a principle found in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. You don't need to turn there. Let me just read it for you. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Listen, you cannot hide. You can't hide your sin. Hear me, and I'm, not, I'm saying this as a friend and a brother, you will get away with nothing remember that there's a famous story in the old testament about this principle and it's in the book of Joshua where the Lord tells Israel not to take any of the devoted things uh, any of the devoted items after they conquer it well a sneaky little dude named Achan thought that he could pull a fast one he thought that he could take some of the devoted things like the gold and hide it under his tent you know this story well I'm sure Does he get away with it? Nope, he doesn't. Joshua 7 says this. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Seemed like a small thing, fairly small thing. I mean, just take some of the gold. No one's none the wiser places it under his tent, but listen to the shrapnel of devastation that comes from it. Because of Achan's sin, 36 fighters die. Because of Achan's sin, Achan and his family and his, all his livestock die. Because of Achan's sin, the people of God are confused, which, by the way, sin always confuses things, mucks things up. In our story, story the sailors are confused. What's going on? Because of Achan's sin, people are lamenting. Wives and children are lamenting. The leaders are lamenting. Sin psychologically saps people. You may not see your sin as a big deal, but those who are left to pick up the pieces are worn out. There is a misery and a pain and a frustration and a confusion that comes because of sin. Because of Achan's sin, God's enemies are gloating. Because of his sin, reproach is brought on the name of God. On and on we could go. The bottom line is that sin has a lot of shrapnel. Sin affects more people than just yourself. Uh, Randy Alcorn said this. He said, "I, I met with a man who had been a leader in a Christian organization until he had committed immorality. I asked him, what could have been done to prevent this? And he paused only for a moment and then said with haunting pain and precision, if only I had really known, really thought through and weighed what it would cost me and my family and my Lord, I honestly believe I never would have done it. Because of Israel's, or because of Achan's disobedience, a storm came to Israel. Because of Jonah's disobedience, a storm has come to this boat, and now these sailors are scared out of their minds. Look at the next movement in verse 5, the sailors. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. These guys are terrified. Uh, They're saying prayers, but they're they're praying to a false God, false idols, uh, worthless helpers. Uh, These men, as you would expect, are pagans. If they even know about the God of Israel, they're certainly not praying to the God of Israel. And it says, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. You know, almost like who cares about the economic consequences at this point? Uh, Let's live. You know, who cares if we lose all our money? Let's pitch the cargo overboard and, and, and live. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. You know, it's interesting how different people respond uh, differently to stress. You know, you fight or flight. Uh, What's your knee-jerk reaction? I found this out with my wife, Lana Lee, uh, early in marriage. I loved pranking her, scaring her. And uh, she's a fighter. She'd punch or she'd kick. And so learned early on to not do that any longer. Now my kids do it to me. I hate it, and yet I love it. But they'll jump out and scare me. Uh, What do you do when you experience stress? How do you respond? Fight or flight? How, How do you handle crisis? Well, in our story, think about this. The pagans are praying, and God's prophet is sleeping. That's how he responds. He's asleep. One group is in terror, and the other is escaping through sleep. Without allegorizing the story, Can I say or propose that oftentimes the people of God are sleeping in the midst of the storm? There's a difference between living a peaceful and quiet life and being cowardly, silent, and exclusive. Trying not to rock the boat can sometimes be a convenient excuse for disobedience and inactivity. Jonah, think about it, he's as far away from the Gentiles as he can possibly be in the boat. Uh, He's as far away from his mission. He's as far away from his mission field. He's as far away from his God, in his mind at least, as he can possibly be. You know, as Christians, we are in a very difficult position to uh, thread the needle, as it were, uh, culturally. Uh, Our views are not popular, and yet we submit to a God who's revealed himself in his word and his word is at odds with our culture in many different ways. I want to just say, let's not find ourselves conveniently in the bottom of the boat, hiding while the perishing world is looking for truth, looking for answers. You know, haters are going to hate, you could say, but Christians need to stand up and speak the truth. And as the story of Jonah teaches us, you never know, the Lord might just lead them to repentance knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, I I just love this story. The captain of the ship says, Arise, call. These are the exact same Hebrew words that God used when he called Jonah back in verse 2. The Lord says to Jonah, Arise, Jonah. But now Jonah hears those same words again, only it's from the mouth of a pagan Gentile sailor. A pagan prophet of God speaking God's word to the runaway prophet of God. Arise, call out to your God. Hey, preacher, would you pray? Could you wake up from your sleep and help some brothers out? We're dying here. Does anyone here know a Savior? This would have been a great time for Jonah to speak up, have some courage, maybe? Testify about the Lord? It's like uh sitting next to someone on a plane yesterday. We had a little turbulence, and the lady next to me was a little jittery, and I was just thinking, what if this plane was, you know, started going down and people are screaming and she looks at me and says What must I do to be saved? And I say, I don't know. That would be called a fail. Jonah completely fails here. Perfect opportunity to speak up and say something. He says nothing. In fact, the pagans are more insightful and eager and willing than Jonah. That's the lesson here. So don't miss the irony of of pagan Gentiles begging For the Hebrew prophet to intercede and pray for them. Verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, let's just say, presumably, these are experienced sailors. Uh, They've seen a squall or two this ain't no squall this is divine a great evil has come upon them and they know it they just don't know who's responsible for it so they cast lots now casting lots was a bit like rolling the dice Uh, this was actually a common method for settling matters in the ancient near east and it was sort of seen like divine guidance Uh, the lots were usually stones each one had a white side and the black side if Two dark sides landed up. That meant the answer was no. If two white sides landed up, it meant yes, a white and a black meant try again." And in the case of the sailors, they went around the circle, casting lots and did this to each man until it landed on Jonah. You know there's a proverb that says, Proverbs 16:33, "The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision." Is from the Lord. One more word about these sailors. In my study of this passage, one of the sources I read made a really interesting point. I, I thought about these sailors in the doctrine of common grace. Let me just give a definition of what common grace is. One systematic theology defined it this way. Common grace is God's general favor by which he restrains sin and its consequences maintains human life and culture and bestows a variety of gifts and blessings to all people indiscriminately. In other words, God has given all people gifts and talents and abilities and creativity and even moral insight. James 1 17, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights. This explains why even in cultures that have no ties to God, to the God of Israel, cultures like China, for instance, can, at the same time, produce and invent and create remarkable things, uh, you know, blessings for all humans. It explains how a pagan king like King Cyrus, uh, the Lord can use him to bless the world. Isaiah forty-five, God uses the minds and the intellect. Uh, of unbelievers even, to advance science and industry and government and art and medicine for the common blessing of all people. Uh, common doesn't mean boring or cheap. It just It's a blessing for all. It doesn't save anyone. It doesn't regenerate sinners' hearts. But it's an example of God's general love for all mankind. So in what sense are these sailors an illustration of common grace? One writer puts it this way. Common grace means that non-believers often act more righteously than believers despite their lack of faith. Whereas believers filled with remaining sin often act far worse than their right belief in God would lead us to expect. All this means Christians should be humble and respectful toward those who do not share their faith. They should be appreciative of the work of all people, knowing that non-believers have many things to teach them, Jonah is learning this the hard way. Let's look at our last section in verse 8, the shame. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So, you're obviously not from around here. What have you done? What do you do? What's your race? Verse 9. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is actually the first time in the book Jonah speaks. These are his first words. He says he's a Hebrew, and he fears the Lord. Eh, I don't know he fears the Lord. He says he fears the Lord. Uh, it, It remains to be seen in some ways. But then he mentions that this Lord created the sea and the dry land. He's the Lord of all Creation. By the way, whoever picked the psalm this morning, perfect segue to this. But he's also the Lord who can get you back to dry land. He's the only one who can save you. He started this storm, and he can end it. Verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Frank Page writes this, To know that Jonah was a Hebrew was one thing. To know that he worshipped the supreme God was another. To run away from a God was foolish, but to run away from the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land, was suicidal. Their question, what have you done, was not a question about the nature of Jonah's sin, but an exclamation of horror. They were frightened to the depths of their beings. I mean, they're essentially saying, if your God is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and you ran away from him, what have you done? Seriously, what have you done? Verse 11. And they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Look, look something has to be done stat Like, right now, we need to do something. Your God is angry. You tell us what we need to do. It's getting worse and worse. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. The sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah is essentially saying here, I would rather die than do God's will. I would rather die than bend the knee to this God I supposedly fear Uh, this is pure hard, hard, hard heartedness his conscience seems to be pricked at this point he acknowledges that this storm is because of his disobedience but he's almost a little fatalistic like well this is I guess this is how I go this is how I die Lord caught me it's over I'm the reason for this mess but I don't see any repentance here not yet I don't see a change of heart. I think that comes in chapter 2. But something interesting happens here in verse 12. Jonah offers to become a substitute for these sailors. His life for theirs. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So, oddly, the sailors didn't toss Jonah, Jonah overboard. Instead, they... You know, road for shore, maybe maybe we can save ourselves, but it's no use. The sea becomes more and more violent. It's futile. Their attempt to save themselves is futile. They couldn't do it. They couldn't get to dry land. They rode hard, but they couldn't do it. Couldn't save themselves. Verse fourteen. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord. Let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they finally reach their limit. They finally reach the point of total desperation, and they call out to the Lord. By the way, it is God's mercy when he allows sinners to reach their limits. It's his mercy when he allows people to become exhausted. Because that's when people cry out to God for salvation. You know, the kindest thing God can do for any one of us is show us reality. The reality about yourself, which is horrifying. The reality about him. That's when we call upon the Lord. Everyone, by the way, in this book eventually calls on God. The sailors, Jonah, the Ninevites. They call on the Lord. In fact, they use the covenant name for God, Yahweh. They call on Yahweh for salvation. They fear the Lord. They respect the Lord. They recognize the Lord as the Lord of the sea and the dry land. Look at verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Amazing. <laughs> the God of Israel has heard them, and because he is the sovereign Lord, he commands the ocean to be still, and it is still. Does verse 15 conjure up any parallel stories in the New Testament? Any storms called by a particular Lord in the New Testament? Look at verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So here we have a little bit of foreshadowing, a sneak peek of a larger conversion and repentance. There's the added irony, which just causes me glee. There's an added irony in the fact that Jonah, the great anti-missionary, has unwittingly led pagan Gentiles to trust in the God of Israel. The fear of the Lord is the essence of all saving knowledge and wisdom. And these men were told, fear the Lord exceedingly. There is some debate over whether these sailors had had become true proselytes to Israel. And I have no doubt in my mind, they did. Uh, The Midrash, which is like a Jewish commentary on the Torah... Uh, says that these men threw away their idols into the waves, returned to Joppa, went up to Jerusalem, and followed the God of Israel. Whether that actually happened, we're not told. But to me, this is a picture of conversion. Now, spiritually speaking, these men have crossed onto dry land already. They are saved, safe, secure. By the way, there's some more irony here in, in that Jonah is... Running from God because he did not want God to save the pagan Gentiles. And the very first thing that happens in our story is that God saves the pagan Gentiles. We're going to pick this story back up tonight. And, uh, dis- but I, I want to first distill this passage and just highlight a few principles and lessons for us. The first one is the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 9 again. I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. After the sea calmed down, the sailors, quote, feared the Lord exceedingly. I think it might be helpful to just unpack this a little bit more. What does this mean? Uh, Solomon, endowed with the wisdom of God, starts off the book of Proverbs with this thesis, quote, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That verse is really the foundation of the book of Proverbs. All wisdom starts with a basic understanding of the creator, God. It assumes God's existence. Uh, the Dutch reformer Abraham Kuyper said, There isn't one inch over all of creation that God doesn't say, mine. Knowing that, believing that, is the beginning of wisdom. Isaiah prophesies The Lord Almighty is the one You are to fear. He is the one you're to dread. Jesus says, fear God who has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. Yes, he's the one you're to fear. Kevin Miller says, so when the Bible talks about fearing God, it means not just awe and not just reverence. It also means fear. It's the kind of fear I felt at the Grand Canyon, he says, where I was drawn to the amazing beauty, but I also felt a realistic fear at the danger because people who acted foolishly near it have died. You know, today our culture and sometimes the church, I think, fears things we really need not fear, and we don't fear things we should fear. Charles Bridges says, The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. It's a posture towards God, a reverence. Uh, That's what Jonah claimed he had but didn't. That's what the sailors didn't have but later did. They feared the Lord. R.C. Sproul just passed away a couple years ago, but he tells a story of an encounter he had when he was teaching theology at Temple University back in the 60s, and he says, on one such day I sought an hour of solace and quietude from this cacophony in the faculty dining room. I stretched my lunch hour to the limit in order to squeeze out every moment of peace I could enjoy, and as the noon hour ended, I deposited my lunch tray in the bin, and it was." began my trek across the plaza to my classroom. I was walking briskly to avoid being late. I was alone, minding my own business. Suddenly, apparently, out of nowhere, a gentleman appeared in front of me, blocking my forward progress. He looked me in the eye and asked directly, are you saved? I wasn't quite sure how to respond to the intrusion. I uttered in response the first words that came into my mind, saved from what? What I was thinking, but had the grace not to say, was I'm certainly not saved from strangers buttonholing me and asking me questions like yours. But when I said, saved from what? I think the man who stopped me that day was as surprised by my question as I had been by his. He began to stammer and stutter. Obviously, he wasn't quite sure how to respond. Saved from what? Well, you know what I mean. You know, do you know Jesus? Then he tried to give me a brief summary of the gospel. Sproul says, This serendipitous encounter left an impression on me. I experienced real ambivalence. On the one hand, I was delighted that uh, in my soul that someone cared enough about me, even though I was a total stranger, to stop me and ask about my salvation. What a wonderful thing. But it was clear that though this man had a zeal for salvation, he had little understanding of what salvation is. He was just using Christian jargon. The words fell from his lips without being processed by his mind. And as a result, his words were really empty of content. Clearly, the man had a love for Christ and a concern for people. Few Christians have the courage to engage perfect strangers in evangelistic discussion. But sadly, he had little understanding of what he was so zealously trying to communicate. And Sproul goes on to say this, and I think he's exactly right. We are saved by God for God, and from God. Jesus is going to return in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a good question to ask. Do you fear God? Are you saved in that sense? One of the lessons from this section in Scripture is that God is holy. He takes sin seriously. Uh, You can't toy with God. You can't ignore God. You have to deal with them he's the the rock the stumbling stone you can't get around the rock stubbornness doesn't work disobedience doesn't work hardening your heart closing your ears and eyes doesn't work rebellion doesn't work we need to fear god revere god respect and obey god the second point i want to highlight for us is divine discipline this is a really a great section on divine discipline in Jonah's life. Uh, let me read a quote by James Montgomery Boyce. He said this There's no question about our being allowed to resist God or disobey Him. We all do it, we do it easily. Though a pagan, Virgil wrote correctly, descensus averno. The descent to hell is easy. When we disobey God, He does not rearrange the stars of heaven to say, Stop! Do not go farther. He lets us go. At first, he does not put great obstacles in our path. If we choose to stop reading our Bibles, he does not send a special prophet to get us reading them again. If we stop praying, he does not send a disaster into our lives to make us turn to him. Not at first. He simply allows us to go downhill and pay for our foolish choices. However... When we persist in our disobedience, he gets rougher. He begins gently, just as we gently disobey, but in the end, he sends a tempest. The storm that Jonah experienced is, I think, a classic example of what could be called divine discipline. Look, God is a good God. And he disciplines those he loves. He loves Jonah, and he loves Jonah enough to not let Jonah go down this road of destruction. Hebrews twelve six, The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. You know, I think it is, it is rarely easy to interpret the providence of God. It's very difficult. But we have the privilege of seeing this story from another perspective and clearly the Lord is the one who's causing the storm. Jonah 1.4 makes it clear the storm is an act of divine punishment. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. It's the consequences for Jonah's stubbornness. You know, sometimes our consequences have natural consequences. Sometimes our consequences are supernatural. Sometimes God intervenes in our lives and gives a wake-up call Sometimes God doesn't just allow storms, sometimes God sends them. And it's not in spite of his love and mercy and kindness that he does this. It's precisely because of his love and his mercy and his kindness. It's like a smart bomb. The Lord knows exactly where to send it. And the Lord hurled the storm at Jonah. So you might be wondering, maybe you're asking yourself the question in your own heart, am i under divine discipline right now is this for me are you experiencing some divine chastisement in your life here's how you respond you respond with humility you respond with obedience repentance trust with a soft heart You confess any known sin and you turn from it. You have a posture towards the Lord that's submissive and open to his leading and his word because be sure your sin will find you out. If you don't deal with your sin, you will be dealt with. So make short accounts with God. I'll close with a story on April 20th, nineteen. 99 my brother was actually in town for this in Denver when this happened at Columbine High School Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris killed 12 students and one teacher and injured 24 others before taking their own lives I was actually a college student uh, at the time when it happened uh, and I'll never forget it maybe you remember it as well even though you weren't in Colorado at the time The November 2009 issue of Oprah's O Magazine featured an article by Dylan's mother, Susan Klebold, where she offers her perspective on uh, the terrible event that happened, which was kind of sadly the beginning of multiple school shootings after that. She writes how she was perceived as an accomplice to the killing, simply because she had raised a, quote, monster. In a newspaper survey taken just after the shootings, 83% of respondents believed the killings happened because Dylan and Eric's parents did not teach them proper values. Quote, Dylan was a product of my life's work, Susan writes. But his final actions implied that he had never been taught the fundamentals of right and wrong. There was no way to atone for my son's behavior. And she goes on to write this. In raising Dylan, I taught him how to protect himself from a host of dangers, lightning, snake bites, snake bites, head injuries, skin cancer, smoking, drinking, sexually transmitted diseases, drug addiction, reckless driving, even carbon monoxide poisoning. It never occurred to me that the gravest danger to him, and as it turned out to many others, might come from within. Well, that's our greatest danger as well. Alan Redpath was an old English preacher. I don't think he's alive today, but he said, there is no sin I'm not capable of committing five minutes after this sermon is over. He was in his 80s when he said that. Praise God, though, we have a solution and a Savior who loves us enough to knock us over and even send a storm big enough to get our attention. The lesson for us, fear God, obey God, bend the knee to God. That's what Jonah is about to learn, and we'll pick it up tonight. Let me close in prayer, invite the music team to come up in just a minute, but uh, I want to just invite you, if you're here today, And you sense in your heart just kind of a resistance and a hostility. I want to give you a gentle warning. That's not a good thing. What you need to do is soften your heart. Acknowledge that there is this resistance and hostility. And unless you turn from that, confess that, you will be in a situation much, much worse than Jonah. Your only hope is to soften your heart. Humble your heart. And really have in your heart a desire to do whatever it is the Lord is asking you to do. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, which is so relevant even thousands of years after this story has been written. Lord, I pray that you would give us, grant to us, all of us, soft hearts, amiable hearts. Heart that fears you and reveres you. and Lord, prevent us from thinking we know better than you. Prevent us from thinking that uh, we can go our own way and do our own thing with no consequences. Lord, thank you for your divine discipline. Even though it may be uncomfortable, it is your love and mercy and kindness. So have your way in all of our hearts, we pray, in Jesus' name.